I believe, if memory serves, that I was nine years old the first time that I ever stepped foot in a courtroom. I can't exactly recall the circumstances under which I ended up going with my father to 26 in California, which is the big boy court located in Chicago. Its hallways and courtrooms are filled with some of the worst of the worst. If I had to guess, I'd think that Bob Sr. was exercising his visitation with me over a weekend and it somehow extended to a Monday. I recall entering the massive structure and heading through the metal detectors where the uniformed men manning the machines knew my father by name. After all, this was his stomping ground as he was a Cook County public defender. And at that juncture, he was the head of the felony division. So he was handling cases that would turn your stomach and make your skin crawl on a daily basis. The kind of cases that we now listen to on our true crime podcast. My father, in his immaculately kept blue three-piece suit, guided me through the maze of hallways and corridors until we reached a set of gold-sealed double doors. Emblazoned with the seal of the state of Illinois, the fierce eagle which adorns it, seemingly eyeballing me. I could sense the door's weight when he pulled it open. He led the way as I trailed closely behind into the courtroom, which was the biggest and most impressive room that I had ever witnessed firsthand at that point in my life. Rows of bench seating flanked both sides of the aisle, each side filled with all walks of humanity. He directed me to sit down, pointing at the front row, amongst the grown men that were there, awaiting for their cases to be called, which I, of course, was unaware of, but I did as I was told. He continued on his path, passing through a three-foot-high wood-paneled barrier with a pair of swinging half-doors known as the Bar of the Court, which served to separate the alleged criminals from them, the lawyers and the judge, who took up residence in the well of the courtroom. I sat quietly and took it all in, the 20-foot ceilings, the two long counsel tables, the lawyers standing at each table, digging through their briefcases, the flags of the United States and the state of Illinois, the large, intimidating bench, which seemed to span the entire width of the room, and which was perched high above the rest of the courtroom, where the old man in the black robe was situated, looking down from up on high at all of those who addressed him as your honor. Now, I was the only child in a room full of adults, and I distinctly recall feeling one thing, intimidated. After all, it's one of the primary goals of the trappings of the court, to intimidate all of those who enter, so as to have them avoided at all costs in the future. Eventually, after many names that I was unfamiliar with were called out by a woman sitting next to the judge, one name in particular was called, which caused my father to rise from his chair and approach the bench. It all began cordially enough. My dad introduced himself and told the judge that he was there on behalf of the man standing to his right, who was clothed in an orange jumpsuit and was shackled at both his hands and feet. The other lawyer informed the judge that he was there on behalf of the people of the state of Illinois. It was at this point that my father began explaining to the judge that he had filed a motion which was requesting that the county pay for his client to have a full mental health examination 
because his client had not a pot to piss in. The pursuit of justice required it, my father argued. The state's attorney, of course, took the opposite position, arguing that the exam was unnecessary and that the cost of such a frivolous evaluation cannot be a burden that John and Jane Q. taxpayers should have to shoulder. The judge, well, he listened to both men say their respective piece and then ruled in short order, finding in favor of the state, claiming that the county did not have the funds to pay for such an exam or evaluation. My father calmly told the judge that if such was the case, that he was going to walk down to the comptroller's office, which is who handles the county's money, right then and there, and see if, in fact, they did not have the money. As the judge was suggesting, the judge's face turned beet red, and his eyes bulged out of his deeply sunken eye sockets as he roared at my father that he was out of line, that he was challenging the integrity of the court. Now, I had never seen anyone other than my mother scream at my father, so I was taken aback as I never anticipated that this is what happened with my dad when he went to his job every day. Typically, when a judge lays down the law in the courtroom, the lawyers, well, they abide. Because without this type of decorum in the courts, it would be an absolute free-for-all in there. Because there are not many places on the planet where the stakes are higher for individuals than in a court of law. That being said, emotions can and do run very, very high. So rules are needed and the judge must have complete authority in his or her little kingdom. In this particular circumstance, my father did not relent to the judge, which, of course, puts him in peril of being held in contempt of court, which is the judge's weapon used to get people to behave accordingly. Instead, he yelled back, informing the judge that the county had a duty to pay for his client to have his mental health evaluated and that to deny him such funds would violate his fundamental right to a fair trial. This verbal sparring continues for a few minutes with these two angry men yelling back and forth at one another. My eyes were like saucers, as I obviously had zero understanding as to what they were arguing about. Finally, the judge starts yelling at my father for him to get the hell out of his courtroom which is much better than holding him in contempt and having the sheriff bring him in the back and toss him in jail. At that point, my father turned on his heels and began heading towards me. Let's go, Bobby, he said to me as he stormed past. I slid off the bench seat and scurried after him. Once outside the courtroom, he stopped and looked at me. So, that's what I do for a living, he said with a big smile plastered on his face. Now, my dad has always been my hero, but that day, I came to realize just what a hero he actually was, as he gave a voice to the voiceless every day that he was in that or any other courtroom. It wouldn't be until years later that he explained to me what had gone down that day, but that story has been ingrained in my mind for all of these years. I've known many attorneys during the course of my life, and none of them have bested my father with regards to knowledge of the law and integrity. The one thing he told me that has always stuck with me, which I remember arguing with him about at the time, I think I was 17 or 18, was that when you become an attorney, it swallows the rest of you whole. 
and it's omnipresent, that it becomes your identity. And I remember telling him at that time that I didn't care what I did for a living. I would never let what I did for work overtake who I am as a person. It would take about 10 years of me practicing criminal defense law for the metamorphosis to take place. When one day, I suddenly realized that me being a lawyer had infected every part of my persona. I'll be damned. The old man was right. It was impossible to separate Bob Mata, the father and husband, Bob Mata, the friend, Bob Mata, the podcast host, from Bob Mata, the lawyer. You know what? I'm good with that. Love you, Dad. Episode 20. Penelope the Fifth. We left off in the last two episodes, splitting time looking back on Anthony Garcia's experience in the pathology department at Creighton University, which, let's be frank, is not going well, and tracking Omaha PD's investigation into the Russian as the potential perpetrator of the Hunter and Sherman killings. Anthony is not making many friends within the ranks of the faculty or the administration. And Detective Doug Harout, well, he's in the middle of a conversation with an admin at the Allegheny Medical Examiner's Office, which is becoming increasingly frustrating as he is simply trying to figure out if there is any evidence that exists within their records that would confirm or deny whether or not the Russian was in Pittsburgh on the 13th of March, 2008. It's becoming clear that what the feds had told Harout about the record-keeping at the ME's office being less than stellar was absolutely true. So, that catches you up. Let's dig in. Last we heard in early March of 2001, Garcia had been told by Hunter that they were not going to be renewing his contract at the end of the year. It wasn't an immediate termination, but it had the same overall effect. Bill Hunter has given Anthony the option of resigning, which would keep the information off of the national database, or they would have to terminate him, which would require Creighton to report it to the database. Garcia, in response, sent an email to the dean of the school, explaining from his side of things what had been going on over in the pathology department. The dean informs him that he has to deal with these issues back where he's getting stonewalled. The next couple of weeks go by without incident, as things have seemed to calm down a bit. At this point, on March 14th, 2001, after a meeting with Bill Hunter, wherein Garcia tells Hunter that he would like to stay at Creighton and that he will not be seeking employment elsewhere, he tells Hunter that he will try to cooperate. And further, mind-blowingly, he tells Hunter that he will apologize to Boutra. Hunter tells Garcia that a solution may be to put him under review, and that's in quotes, and that there will be certain things required of him to perform, but that if he can accomplish what is expected of him, that the department will likely reconsider its decision not to re-up his contract in late June. 
Hunter tells Garcia to draft an email detailing the conversation to the department chair, Roger Brumbeck, which Garcia does. That day, as a matter of fact, it reads as follows. Dr. Brumbeck, having spoken with my residency program director, Bill Hunter, he suggested that I write this letter to you. We discussed the second year of pathology residency here. He suggested that I might be placed, quote, under review and specific solutions, end quote, be made, such as attending conferences, signing in and out of surgical cytology cases, apologize to Dr. Butra, presenting at a conference, and good attendance. He also suggested that a meeting be made with you, him, and myself to discuss this further and seek a common ground. Yours, Anthony Garcia. The following day, March 14, 2001, Garcia drafts the following email, Dear Dr. Butra, Having spoken with Dr. Hunter, he said that you feel that I owe you an apology. I am sorry if any of my words have insulted you. A teacher whose efforts shape the future minds of pathologists. I've spoken to the GME office and Dr. Hunter about my second year of pathology residency here, and I expressed my goals to not run from problems here to another residency program. I want to work out any problems that I have here. I've told Dr. Hunter that I will change to be the resident the faculty wants me to be. Sincerely, Anthony Garcia. Now, I can only imagine just exactly how much Garcia detested writing that email. But the fact of the matter is that he swallowed his pride and he did it. Hunter invites Garcia in and tells him to sit and informs him that the department heads have convened and have decided to give him a second chance and have agreed to place him, quote, under review, end quote. He slides a piece of paper across his desk and asks Anthony to review it. That paper reads as follows. This is formal notification that you are placed, quote, on review, end quote, for your disruptive behavior and attitude and for your handling of the body during the autopsy on 217-01. As we have discussed, you agree to the following conditions. One, attend and participate in all teaching conferences unless performing an autopsy or other service activity. Two, apologize to Dr. Butra. Three, sign out of all surgicals and cytologies with Dr. Butra. Four, present at conferences as assigned. Five, read the chapters in the forensic medicine texts regarding the changes in the body after death and the nature of liver mortis. Learn how to move bodies and write a manual of patient transport for use by pathology personnel. And then finally, number six, meet with Dr. Hunter by 6.30 of 01 to review status. Garcia signs the document and hands it back to Hunter. And it appears that he has been able to put out the fire that was raging in the pathology department with the help of Bill Hunter. I mean, after all, everybody deserves a second chance. The question now becomes, will Anthony be able to take advantage of it? Meanwhile, let's flash forward from 2001 up to 2011, specifically February 22nd, where Doug Harout is in Pittsburgh and is sifting through the paperwork that he's being handed by an admin pursuant to a subpoena. He's currently looking at what are called face sheets, which indicate which doctors were scheduled for an autopsy and if they were present 
they are supposed to sign off on it. Now, we left off with Harout taking a look at the face sheet for March 13th of 2008. Once again, Harout cross-references the calendar that states that the Russian is scheduled to handle autopsies on the 13th. Yet, on the face sheet, the Russian is not listed, nor is his signature present for the first autopsy that occurred that day. Harout then flips to the second autopsy that occurred on the 13th of March, and again, it does not bear the signature of the Russian. Harout then checks the 14th, the day after the murders, and once again, the Russian is scheduled to be on duty, but it appears that he wasn't in attendance, as the face sheet, once again, does not bear his signature. That thought that this guy never signs these sheets is tempering any enthusiasm that Harout may be feeling about the fact that the Russian may not have been in Pittsburgh on the 13th or 14th of March. However, when he gets to the 15th of March, his fears are allayed. Oddly, the calendar for the 15th does not have the Russian as being on duty. Yet, the face sheet for the first autopsy that is performed on this day has the Russian signature, stating that he is a fellow in forensic pathology and was, in fact, present for the autopsy. The face sheet for the next autopsy performed on the 15th also has the signature of the Russian and identifies his role in this autopsy as that of an associate medical examiner. It appears that the Russian did not participate in the third autopsy that is performed on this day as his signature does not appear on the face sheet. The face sheet for the fourth and fifth autopsies performed on the 15th both contain the Russian's signature with him in the role of fellow of forensic pathology. The same scenario occurs on the 16th, as the Russian doesn't appear on the calendar, but has signed off on all three of the autopsies performed that day. Harout then questions the admin as to why the Russian is appearing on the schedule on the dates of the 11th through the 14th and is being paid, yet he doesn't show up for one autopsy during any of those four days. The admin has no answers. Harout inquires if there's anything else that he should see. The admin tells him, at this point, no, there isn't. Harout thanks her, secures copies of the documents, and then books them into evidence. As it stands now, it appears that the Russian was not present during any of the autopsies performed during March 11th through March 14th, which would of course indicate that if he was in fact so inclined that he could have easily made the trip to Omaha and back by the morning of the 15th, with plenty of time to make it to the office to perform the autopsies he signed in for. This little field trip has yielded more fruit than anything that OPD has uncovered in the last year and a half. With a skip in his step and a renewed enthusiasm, Harout heads to the workplace of the former girlfriend of the Russians. As finally, he feels that he may be onto something. Upon arriving to the steel factory, he is once again met by the same man that he spoke with yesterday. Perout tells the supervisor that Penelope never contacted him yesterday and inquires whether or not he actually passed the message on to her. He claims that he did, but Harout has his doubts about the veracity of this statement. 
Harout then inquires if he can just speak with Penelope at the business. The man tells Harout that he can try to get her on the phone, but that he's not sure if he can allow for the police to interview her on premises. So Harout follows the supervisor into his office, where he picks up the phone and calls Penelope and informs her that there's a couple of cops from Omaha here to speak with you. He then tells her that she's under no obligation to speak with them if she doesn't want to. Penelope then tells her supervisor that she'll speak to the cop over the phone. He hands the phone over to Harout and proceeds to leave the office. Harout takes his digital recorder out of his pocket and begins taping the conversation. Penelope immediately tells Harout that she has already spoken with the cops and that she doesn't have anything to tell him that's helpful. Harout corrects her and tells her that who she has actually already spoken to is a private investigating firm and that he has more in-depth questions that he just needs to ask her. This is of little or no consequence to Penelope as she remains resistant and uninterested in aiding the police with respect to her former boyfriend. Harout would not and could not be dissuaded. I'll tell you what, I'd rather have this conversation with you in person, he tells her. Well, I'm not really comfortable with that. Plus, like I told the other guys, I don't have any information for you. Harout can sense the woman's hesitation about speaking to him, which makes him even more anxious to speak with her. Look, what if we just speak here at your work, in one of the conference rooms? Yeah, I I don't think so. I'm not sure exactly what it is that you guys are looking for, but I'm pretty sure I'm not it. Look, I gotta get back to work. Fearing that he is losing her completely, he relents and decides that a phone conversation is better than no conversation. Fine, we can speak over the phone, but I can assure you, ma'am, you're not in any kind of trouble. We're just trying to get some information that may help us in our investigation. Fine, go ahead, but make it quick. I don't have much time. I have to get back to work. Harout's thrilled. Great, I just want to verify with you that you dated the Russian back in 2008 for approximately six months. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I think we started seeing each other right after the new year, and it lasted till around the end of July. Okay, and how would you characterize your relationship with them? What do you mean? Well, was it serious? Were you dating each other exclusively, or was it totally casual? Did you see each other every day? You know, things like that. I have to tell you, I'm not understanding why any of this matters to you, and I'm not going to answer it. Ma'am, we're just trying to get some background, that's all. Would you consider your relationship with the Russian to be a difficult one? (laughs) This is not what I consider to be within the normal realm of questions that a cop should ask me. I'm not answering that either. Harout is curious what it is that she seems to be avoiding talking about. Look, I'm really just trying to get some background on the Russia, not you. But understanding the type of relationship you two had helps me figure out what types of questions to ask you. If you were to tell me that in the six or seven months that you dated, you only saw him a couple of times a month, I would then have an understanding that you probably don't know much about him. And he certainly wouldn't feel close enough to you to divulge any kind of secrets. Secrets? What do you mean secrets? If you weren't that close, it's less likely that he would have opened up and told you much of anything that he would consider to be private. Let me ask you this. Do you recall what other investigators spoke with you about or even which case it was about? 
At this point, Penelope is exasperated. No, I don't remember what they asked me or what we spoke about, and I have no idea what case they were asking me about. Okay, well, let me tell you what case we're talking about. We're investigating a double homicide that occurred in Omaha back in 2008. After that homicide, we received multiple tips that the Russian had a background in Omaha and was somebody that we should investigate. Do you recall if these other people were asking about that case? I don't understand what any of this has to do with me or me dating him for a while. Her route is becoming more and more suspicious of this woman's refusal to cooperate with him. Look, all we are trying to figure out here is if these tips that we have received have any validity, and we are going to best be able to ascertain that by speaking with the people that he knows, and you are someone that knows him. Do you remember any short stretches of time that he was gone while you were dating him? I don't remember. Were there any times that you felt uneasy around him where he made you feel uncomfortable? I don't remember. Okay, do you recall what type of vehicle he drove? He drove a silver Honda, and I don't know what model it was, but it was a sedan. Okay, good. Do you know if he owned any other vehicles? No, I don't think he did. That was his only car. Do you know if he ever rented vehicles? I don't think he rented any vehicles, but to be honest, I really don't know. Do you recall if the Russian had friends that lived up in Canada? I know he had some friends up there, but we never really discussed them. Did you two live together? Yes, for a short period of time we did. When? I I guess you would say it was towards the beginning of the relationship, but I really can't recall. Do you recall if you were living with him in March of 2008? No, I don't. It's possible, but I don't recall. Do you recall him ever confiding in you and telling you something shocking that he may have done? Again, I don't remember. Now, as you're sitting there listening to this interview, if you're wondering if she was really this evasive, well, she was. These questions and answers are coming directly from her out's report. Now, if you're also wondering, why in the hell is this woman being so evasive? Believe me, Harout is wondering the exact same thing. This is the type of Q&A you get from somebody who has something to hide. Maybe what she has to hide has nothing to do with the Russian, or maybe it does. Either way, it's not giving the cop questioning her the warm and fuzzies. Harout has reached the tipping point at this juncture, and he wants to know exactly why she is being so evasive. Are you not answering my questions because you don't want to, or because you just don't want to be involved? I I don't know, but I do know that I'm not comfortable with your questions. Ma'am, I'm sorry that my questions are making you uncomfortable. That is not my intention at all. I am here in Pittsburgh because an innocent 11-year-old boy and an older woman were brutally murdered, and they deserve justice, and so do their families. I am simply trying to help get that for them. This is not a witch hunt. As I said, we received some rather disconcerting tips regarding your ex-boyfriend. And that boy that was killed happens to be the son of one of the doctors at the university where your boyfriend used to work. Which, by the way, 
he did not leave under the best circumstances. Now, I can't tell you much more because this is an active investigation, but your evasiveness from someone who is not a suspect is incredibly troubling to me. It leads me to believe that you're hiding something. <laughs> Do I need to get an attorney? Do you feel as if you need to get an attorney? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's feeling like I need to have one present because I have told you multiple times I don't know anything. I don't have any information that will be helpful to you, yet you keep asking me questions. Ma'am, I want to make it abundantly clear. You are under no legal obligation, nor are we applying any pressure on you in order to get you to talk. You are free to leave at any time. As I've said, you are in no trouble here. And with that being the case, I wouldn't think that you would need a lawyer. We are really just hoping that someone can help us. Because this case is now cold, and we are running out of options. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying. Well, I have to ask you, is there a reason in particular that you don't want to talk about the Russian? Is it because he's not a part of your life anymore? Or is it because you were afraid to tell me anything about him? <sighs> no, it's nothing. I just don't communicate with him anymore. After this exchange, Harout begins to sense that she's relaxing a bit, as the tone from both has become less contentious. If you recall, as it would be really helpful, in the six months that you dated him, do you recall him leaving Pittsburgh? Well, he would leave for seminars on occasion, but I don't remember the dates or anything like that, but... He told me they were for his classes, and I would think that there would be a record of it somewhere. I believe that he went to Florida and D.C. while we were dating. Do you know what his connections to Florida were? No, I don't. Do you know where he worked when you were dating him? Yes, the county of Allegheny. Do you know what he did for them? Yes, I, I know he was a medical examiner. Do you remember how you guys met... Not really, I guess like any other people meet on the street. Do you remember if the Russian left for Canada after the relationship ended? I don't know if he went up to Canada because the relationship ended, but I do know that he accepted the job up there shortly after we ended things. Do you remember him going to Omaha for anything while you dated? I don't remember, but I don't think so. Do you remember whether he rented vehicles when you were together, or did you ever rent a vehicle for him? I told you, no, I don't, and no, I never rented a car for him. Did you both live at your current address when you dated? No, we lived at his place. Are you familiar with any of the Russians' friends? No, uh, honestly, I don't remember meeting any of his friends during the time that we dated. In six months, you never met one of his friends? That's right. Let me ask you, ma'am, do you have any questions for me? No, but I hope that you don't come to my place of work again. I understand that. I just have a couple more things to ask. Did the Russian have a cell phone when you dated him? He had a pager phone from his job, but he didn't have a cell phone. Did you guys have mutual friends? Look... I'm finding your questions to be intrusive, and I'm shutting this down. I am done answering questions. 
Her route restates why they are there and the importance of her divulging information if she has any. Then proceeds to ask her, Do you know why he left Omaha? No. I told you I'm done. I have a lot of work to do. I don't want you coming back to my place of employment. It's not a good look. Well, in all fairness, I left my card with my number on it here yesterday. Yet, you didn't call me back. So, I had to come back here. You were one of the only two reasons we are in Pittsburgh. I'd like your permission to call you if necessary. Penelope relented. Fine. Harout thanked her and terminates the interview. Harout and his travel companion make their way to the airport for a red-eye back to Omaha. The trip definitely had its bumps along the way, but in no way was it a total bust. He was leaving Pittsburgh with one thing being made pretty clear, and that is that the Russian was not performing autopsies in Pittsburgh on the 12th, 13th, or 14th of March in 2008. And that means that he lied to them when they were up in Calgary. And the question now becomes, why? Omaha PD now has a renewed vigor in trying to figure out where in the world the Russian was on March 13th of 2008. Maybe this cold case isn't so cold after all. And for the next three months, Omaha PD will be training their sights directly on the Russian. Now, it's time to flash back. Well, since we've already flashed back, I guess this would be a flashback flashback to April of 2001. Back to the sterile confines of the pathology department of Creighton University. With Garcia now officially, quote, under review, end quote, the month of April goes by without incident. According to Bill Hunter, Garcia had performed satisfactorily on his microbiology rotation, which brings us to May of 2001. Early May is chugging along as Anthony is towing the line and keeping his mouth shut. He's performing well in his surgicals and the issues with Butra seem to have subsided. Now, it's hard to know if Garcia at this juncture has simply taken his medicine as harboring resentment or if he really has moved past all of these issues that have plagued him early on. In mid-May, we get a bit of a glimpse into Garcia's mind's eye. Actually, we get a full-blown look. And what we're about to see? Well, let's just say it's not good. Not good at all. At approximately 3.15 on May 17th of 2001, an admin in the pathology department named Karen receives a phone call from a Mrs. Hamish, who is the wife of Dr. Hamish, one of the residents in the program. She asks Karen if she'd be able to find out if her husband was missing something important today at the hospital. Karen checks the schedule and notes that her husband is designated out for the 17th and 18th. So, it's unlikely that he's missing anything of note. Karen tells her that she will double-check with someone at the hospital. Mrs. Hamish tells Karen that the reason for the call is because she has just received a call at her home from someone claiming that they were from the pathology department and that her husband had a requirement that was not met and that he needs to come in today. 
Mrs. Hamish further tells her that she informed the caller that her husband was taking the USMLE Step 3 exam today. The caller told her that he, quote, was just delivering a message, end quote. Karen begins collecting information about the caller. Mrs. Hamish tells her that it was a man with no accent. Karen tells her that she will look into it immediately and disconnects the call. Karen does, in fact, follow up immediately. She first calls Bill Hunter, who verifies that Hamish is scheduled off both the 17th and the 18th, and he is, in fact, taking his Step 3 exams. She also talks to another admin in the department who states that she knows of no requirement. Finally, she asks a doctor from the department if he is aware of any such requirement that Hamish was responsible for on this date, and he also answers no. At this point, Karen calls Hamish's wife back and tells her with 100% certainty that her husband isn't missing anything and informs her that she's going to look into this to see what she can find out. Karen notes that Mrs. Hamish is very taken aback by the call and still remains unsure whether she needs to contact her husband during his exam. Karen begins asking questions around the department, and it doesn't take her long to find some answers. Two pathology assistants inform her that they overheard a conversation between Dr. Garcia and another resident that took place in the gross room. Karen asks for specifics. She is told that the assistants heard Garcia and the other resident talking about calling the home of Hamish and saying that he was unauthorized to take a vacation day. She also states that Garcia said that he knew how to, quote, work the system, end quote, because Dr. Hunter was on vacation. Karen begins to realize that other things that she has been informed of are now making sense. And it is clear to her that Garcia and the other resident are the culprits of the shenanigans that have been taking place within the department recently. Such as another resident receiving pages every half an hour during a night when on call. And she recollects conversations between these two as they walk the halls of the department. And she's talking about conspiratorial type conversations. Karen? is beyond irritated with the situation as it's incredibly immature behavior for not only an adult, but especially for, quote, professionals. She is also of the mindset that this could potentially be a dangerous situation. She proceeds to put all of what she has learned, along with her suspicions, into a memo addressed to Bill Hunter. The following Monday... The 21st of May, some four days after the initial phone call, Dr. Hamish, who is infuriated by the entire situation, also pens a letter to Bill Hunter. And it is a scathing rebuke regarding who he feels are the perpetrators of the ill-fated prank phone call. And it reads, Be sure to tune in to the next episode of Defense Diaries because it looks like the end of the road for Anthony Garcia at Creighton. But we've said that before. Hey guys, quick note here. Defense Diaries is appearing at the True Crime Podcast Festival this weekend. So episode 21 will drop the week after next. But don't worry, 
Darren and I will be recording a live episode while we're at the fest. We will be doing a recap of the second season Tunnel Vision and what's been going on so far. So you will not be left starving for content as we will drop that into the feed in the place of the regular episode. So those of you who have been starving for a bit of B&D, well, we got you covered. And to our patrons out there, we'd like to thank you guys from the bottom of our hearts every time I get an email that says, you got a new patron. I have a little dance in my bedroom. I do like a little parade and I throw my hands in the air. Do you do that day? Something similar? Do I have a parade in my bedroom? No, I do not, Bob. I feel like one bedroom parade heifer is probably enough. You know what I mean? It's probably enough. I mean, that's really all you need. Exactly. The truth is that we adore you guys. You guys mean so much to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And then finally, to you, our beautiful, beautiful listeners who listen to us week in, week out. We love you. We adore you. You're our everything. As you know, without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk at you next time.